Uh, we're coming to the conclusion of our sermon series on Jeremiah. And as we have been kind of looking at uh, over the last number of weeks, Jeremiah was a prophet to Israel uh, to get them to confess and repent, to turn from their sins, and maybe God would spare them the destruction that was to come. A lot of people did not appreciate Jeremiah's message, and they did not repent. And so when the Babylonians came on the doorstep of Israel, Jeremiah had a new message from God. Uh, and it's a message we can act out, we can visually see. So I, I'm going to ask for your participation this morning to help me out in this. Uh, so this is Jeremiah's message. If you're able, uh, Jeremiah says, first lift up your left hand. So everybody hold up your left hand. Keep it up there. All right. Then Jeremiah says, lift up your right hand. Everybody. All right. This is Jeremiah's message. Surrender. Surrender. Uh, that message is not appreciated by the defenders of Jerusalem. They don't appreciate that message. It's not an inspiring message to the soldiers, to the political leaders. But that's what Jeremiah says God's message is now. Judgment has come. And if you want to be spared, surrender. It's the only way through. They don't appreciate that message, so they, they beat him. They lock him up. They throw him in a pit, leave him for dead. Now, he gets rescued out of the pit. Jerusalem is destroyed, sacked Babylon. And uh, Jeremiah, at this point, is considered a traitor. Treasonous, his, his uh, actions are considered by many people. In fact, it, it isn't helped by the fact that when Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem, he sends word to his generals, take everybody into exile except Jeremiah. We don't need to worry about him. So it doesn't help Jeremiah that Nebuchadnezzar is in your corner. Jeremiah and the remnant remain for a while in and around Jerusalem, and then they flee the land of God, and they go to Egypt. The latter half of the book of Jeremiah is written in Egypt, and it is Jeremiah's attempt to give them hope when hope seems lost. So how can Jeremiah give them hope? Well, he reminds them of who their God is. So in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, in Egypt, he gives these words. The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and I have drawn you with an unfailing kindness. A lot of people start to ask the question, where does that sound familiar? Jeremiah in Egypt says, remember the Lord your God who has loved you with an everlasting love and has drawn you with an unfailing kindness. Those words sound familiar because they were given to Israel in Egypt during the Exodus. Jeremiah is quoting from an event that took place at Israel's beginning in Exodus 34. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to pull them out real quick and look with me at Exodus 34, particularly verse 6. And we're going to be looking at this verse the next couple of weeks. As we kind of conclude Jeremiah, we're going to start a new series looking at uh, what I'm going to call, I'm going to title the sermon series on, Let Me Introduce You to God. 
And that's what Exodus 34, verse 6 is all about. And Jeremiah, at a time of hopelessness, reminds them, this is our God. If you remember at this point in Exodus 34, Israel has been freed from slavery in Egypt. They have miraculously been spared from Egypt's armies, and they have now come to the mountain of God, where God reveals himself to his people. And we read this in Exodus 34, verse 6. This is the very words of God. The Lord... The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, and then notice this, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's what Jeremiah is quoting. Abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellious and sin. What makes God God? is that he is abounding in love and faithfulness. In Hebrew, love and faithfulness is the words hesed and emet. Let me hear you say those, all right? Hesed. Everybody say that together. Hesed, all right? And now emet. Say emet. Emet, all right? Let's look at each one of these separately. Let's start with hesed. Hesed is a sweeping panoramic word that there is uh, really no English equivalence for. That's why translations are all over the map. It can be translated sometimes love, sometimes steadfast love, or unfailing love, or everlasting love, or covenant loyalty. Uh, this love is one of the most important aspects of God's character. It's the only character trait that is listed in Exodus 34, 6 that's repeated. Remember, we read there, abounding in love and faithfulness. And then the next line, maintaining love, has said to thousands. If an ancient writer really wanted to drive a point home, he would repeat it. If an ancient writer really wanted to drive a point home, he would repeat it. If an ancient writer really wanted to drive a point home, he would, would repeat it. God speaks about his love twice, back to back. Meaning, this is one of the truest things there is about God. He is abounding. He is spilling over. He is way past capacity in his love, in his head. But also in a met means faithfulness. Literally, the word means truth. It's actually connected to the word amen. Amen and amen. Usually people say amen when a preacher says something that rings true deep in their bones. But amen can also be translated as trustworthy. It has the idea of reliability that you can count on this God. This God will not let you down. Unlike a lot of us. You know, when life gets hard, so many of us bail. When life is no longer easy, fun, novel, when it gets difficult or uncomfortable or boring, we have a tendency to just want to leave. So we leave jobs, we leave communities, we leave churches, we leave friendships, we leave marriages, we just cut the ties and run. God is not like that. He is faithful. Now when you put hesed and emet together, it's really explosive. 
abounding in love and faithfulness, is called a hendiatus. Hendiatus. Any lit majors out there remember what a hendiatus is? I had to Google it to remind myself. A hendiatus is a literary device where two nouns are smashed together and they define each other. In other words, God's love is his faithfulness and his faithfulness is his love. This is why the English word love is wimpy. Or as a good friend of mine says, it's weak sauce. When we read love, most of us think about feelings, maybe tolerance. So we read love and think God is just saying he really likes us. He feels nice, warm emotions about us. And he does. We're going to get into that next week. But said and met are about God's loyalty. How he never, ever abandons his people. But he's faithful to the bitter end, no matter the cost. So this pairing of love and faithfulness, it is used over and over and over again in the Bible. This is why Jeremiah uses it. In the Psalms alone, this phrase is used 126 times. So we're supposed to notice. Psalm, 100, excuse me, Psalm 89, verse 1, the writer writes this. Notice, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever, and with my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all the generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. Love, faithfulness, love, faithfulness. And there are hundreds of examples of this. God's love and faithfulness are one of the major themes of the Bible and one of the main reasons for worship in Psalms. It sparks poetry and music and awe and gratitude and prayer and hope. Now, this raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? If this is true, if God is abounding in love and has everlasting faithfulness, then how did I end up in an unhappy marriage? Why am I 40 and still single? How come I have a chronic illness? Why did I have a miscarriage? Why was my child born with needs? How could I get fired from my dream job? Why am I upside down on my mortgage? How was I born into a world with systemic hatred? You know, it is hard sometimes to reconcile God's love and faithfulness with life. So let's walk through that together a little bit this morning. We can't fully wrap our heads around hesed and emet without understanding another word called covenants. And to do that, we need to at least have a basic grasp of the overall story of the Bible. And this will only take me about an hour and a half to do, but hang with me. We're going to do it real short time. Covenant isn't a word we really use anymore. It's in our church name, but it's not a word we typically use. Covenant is a word from another time, another place. In the ancient Near East, a covenant was essentially a hybrid between a promise and a legal contract. It was relational. Two or more people would make a promise, and then they would sign a contract with clearly defined blessings and cursings for keeping or breaking that promise. And the closest thing that we have in the modern world to a covenant is a marriage. 
Marriage is not a contract, it is a covenant. It is a promise to love and stay faithful to your spouse. But a covenant is also a binding contract. When you get married, you sign your life away. And there are consequences if you don't keep your promise. Now, if you know the story of the Bible, it has a lot to do with God making covenants. One of the key covenants is in Genesis 12, where God calls a Bedouin named Abram. And the first thing God does with Abram is he makes a covenant, a promise. This is Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. Notice the wording. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. If you notice all the I will language, that's covenant language. And so God promises to bless this nation, to bless Abraham and his family. And not just that, but he will bless all the peoples on earth through them, through this nation. So first, God will bless Abraham's family. Then in turn, they bless the world. It's the pattern. And God is saying he's going to put right everything in the world that's gone awry. But he's going to do this through the recreative work through Abraham's family, later called Israel. Now, this is a staggering promise. But notice, God does not promise Abraham an easy, carefree life with money in the bank in a condo in Kauai. God promises to bless Abraham so that Abraham can go bless others. And if you know the story, Abraham's life was anything but a walk in the park. A few chapters later, Abraham is up against the wall and it looks like God has been unfaithful to his promise. Years have passed and Sarah is still childless and now they're both elderly way past the time to make a child. How could a couple in AARP with infertility issues become parents of a great nation? You know, often we look at the promises of God over our lives and then we compare them to our circumstances and we think they don't line up. Well, in a couple chapters, Genesis 15, something happens. And I warn you here, it's a weird story. A lot of people skip over it, but you got to pay attention to the details. God tells Abraham to gather some animals and make a sacrifice, a bull, a goat, a ram, and a few birds. And Abraham cuts the animals in half, and he spreads them out on the ground. Now, don't think picnic here. That's not what's happening here. We've got a little graphic that we're going to show you what this may have looked like. In the ancient Near East, this is called cutting the covenant. It's a ceremony. You would cut animals in half and lay them in parallel line, and then both parties would walk through the makeshift pathway of dead animals as a symbolic way of saying, if I don't keep my end of the promise, may this happen to me. Blood and death. But that's when the story takes a weird turn. God makes Abraham go to sleep. And Abraham sees a vision of God in the image of a smoking fire pot walk through the animals all by himself. 
Have you ever read this story and thought to yourself, what in the world is going on? If not, don't feel so bad about it. It is kind of bizarre, but this is a really powerful moment. It's God's way of saying that even if Abraham and his children do not keep their end of the bargain, he will keep his promise. He'll rescue and save the world through this soon-to-be nation, no matter the cost. And if blood has to be spilled, it will not come for Abraham. It will come from God himself. God himself is willing to die and become like these animals to keep his promise to bring the world back to life. Now, hopefully, your mind is already jumping ahead and connecting the dots to Jesus. If it is, keep it to yourself because that's how I want to end the sermon, so don't blow it, okay? But for the rest of the Old Testament, really the entire Bible, it is all about God faithfully keeping his covenant with Abraham's family and Israel failing miserably on her end. The Bible is a brutally honest, raw, uncut story about God's faithfulness to Israel and Israel struggled to be a faithful bride in return. And what makes the Old Testament so confusing is that in the middle of all of this mess, stories about murder and rape, betrayal, polygamy, domestic abuse, religious genocide, basically every horror you can think of, God is at work. He's involved. He doesn't step back when it gets messy. He steps in when it gets messy. And he is constantly blessing friends and enemies. You know, for the prophet Jeremiah, even the exile was a sign of God's faithfulness. God does not abandon Israel, even if it felt that way. Like a good father, he let Israel go into the exile to discipline her. Jeremiah see a day coming when God will keep his promise. And Jeremiah longs for that day to come. But he never gets to see the answer to his prayer, not fully. For that, you come to Jesus. Jesus is God in flesh and blood. When the writer John pens his famous line about Jesus, Jesus is the word become flesh, dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Father, and he says, full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. John is quoting Exodus 34. The wording is a little bit different because it's lost in translation from Hebrew to Greek to English, which is confusing enough. But John is saying Jesus is God. Jesus is the embodiment of his said and admit. Jesus came to do what Abraham and Israel was supposed to do but never could. He came to bless the world. All because thousands of years ago, God made a promise. And when Israel failed, God was faithful. When Adam failed, God was faithful. When Abraham failed, God was faithful. When Isaac failed, God was faithful. 
When Jacob failed, God was faithful. When Moses failed, God was faithful. When David failed, God was faithful. When Israel failed, God was faithful. When we fail, God is faithful. Jesus takes all our failure, a millennia of broken promises upon himself, drags it to the cross, absorbing it in his death, breaking its hold over humanity through his resurrection. This is why the writers of the New Testament are constantly quoting the Old Testament. God made a promise, and God was faithful to the point of death. And he's still not done. He will keep all of his promise. Jesus will return to see to it. And it's all because God is abounding in love and faithfulness. God loves you with an everlasting love and unfailing kindness. It's because Jesus is full of grace and truth. And now it's your time. This is your day. Israel's story is now your story. We fail over and over and over again, but God is always faithful. This is why I love what Paul writes in his letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13. He writes, if we are faithless, he, God, remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Paul understands that God's faithfulness is his nature. It's who God is. God can no sooner, uh, sooner be unfaithful than he can lie still and cheat. God is faithful even when we are not. When we are flaky, when we are skittish, when we drop the ball. And remember, God's promise isn't that you'll marry your dream spouse, get famous, make a ton of money, retire on the back 40 on a golf course in Florida. God's promise is that he will bless you so you can go bless others. He'll put you to rights so you can help him put the world to rights. And one day in time, he'll return to finish what he started and he will set everything right. God will be faithful to his promise. He's loving and faithful. This is what God is like. And you are God's people. You are his bride. And our role in the relationship is to mirror and to mimic God's character to the world. So let me ask you this morning, are we faithful? Are you faithful? Am I faithful? You know, as a generation, the idea of faithfulness is somewhat alien and strange. Our grandparents knew a thing or two about it, but not us. You know, the average stay in a marriage these days is eight years. Eight years. My grandparents were married till death do they part, 67 years. The average stay in a job these days is only four years, and it drops every year. My grandfather worked in the coal mines when he was under 12 years old and went till he had black lung. 
Faithfulness has become like disco. It used to be cool and a few people still do it, but for the most part, it's just a thing of the past. But here's the problem with that. The best things in life are the result of faithfulness. Years, if not decades, of faithfulness. Faithfulness is a long obedience in the same direction, even in the midst of age of just instant gratification. I grew up in a world where we had microwaves and Visa and Amazon Prime, instant messaging, TV on demand. I want it and I want it now. But in life, there are no shortcuts. You can't microwave character. So if you want to be faithful, no matter how hard it gets, you have to be true because that's what God is like. So think about the implications this has for you. Think about your marriage. Maybe your marriage is difficult, but what would it look like for you to stay faithful to the vows you made through all the emotions, highs and lows of life together? Think about your career. It might be smart to jump to a new job every few years, depending on your field, but to master your craft, to be incredibly good at whatever it is you do, whether it's parenting or architecture or teaching or business, that takes decades. People always tell folks, do what you love, but you can't do what you love until you're good at what you do. And sociologists will tell you, to master your craft typically takes a person 10,000 hours, at least a decade of hard work. Think about your community, your place in it. Think about your church, your neighborhood, your relationships. This generation is so rootless, so transient. We're more tourist than citizens. But what would it look like for you to be faithful to the kingdom of God in your place? Not just for a few months, not for just for a few years, but for a lifetime. Where has God called you to be faithful? You know, whatever it is, the odds are that it will be hard work it will be painfully slow at times, frustrating at times, but the best things in life are. But trust me, it'll be worth it. So keep at it. Don't give up yet. Be faithful like the God you worship. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father God, thank you for your everlasting love and kindness. God, thank you for being the God that continues to love us no matter what. God, thank you for being the God that keeps us his promises. Thank you that you loved us so much. You were willing to become flesh. Come amongst us. Take upon yourself the sins of the world and have your body broken, your blood poured out, demonstrating 
your love and your faithfulness to us. And now you have freed us to live a life of love. God, help us to be faithful in it. Help us not to grow weary. Help us to continue to do good. Help us to lead others to you. Help us to take all that we have been blessed with, what we have been blessed with and given. It's all coming for you. Now help us to give that forward, to bless others. Help us to be a part of what you are doing in this world. Help us to bring your reconciliation to all. Help us to live a life of faithfulness to the very end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.